Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It is Friday, September 24th. At least it will be by the time you're hearing this podcast. On this episode, we'll dig into the minor league awards that Keith handed out for the Athletic earlier this week. We've got the minor league player of the year and several other candidates for that award who are worth digging into. Uh, we're also going to talk about the possibility of the Mariners being the next Blue Jays, maybe next year's Blue Jays, even with the young core they have assembled. Perhaps we'll get into a few changes in the playoff picture since the last time Keith and I spoke. Of course, Keith was out last week. Thanks again to Britt Giroli for stepping in. But Keith, let's start in Kansas City. Bobby Witt Jr. was your choice for the 2021 Minor League Player of the Year Award. Uh, did you mm-hmm. make trophies? Did you send trophies out? I have. I fired up Print Shop yes. on my Commodore 64 and my dot matrix printer is actually still running. Um, I'm hoping that the print job will be done later today. Certificates will be in the mail soon, but Bobby Witt Jr. took home those honors. The Royals had a few other players, Nick Prado and MJ Melendez, who you noted as uh, contenders for those honors. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there were some lofty expectations for Witt coming into the season because of the reports that there was a chance that he might have made the opening day roster. That, of course, didn't happen. He didn't debut this year, but what he did at double A and triple A has to make you very excited if you're a Royals fan. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, I, you know, look, I'll say it would not surprise me at all if Witt started next year in the big leagues and got off to a slow start, that there's a longer adjustment period. There's still some questions, I think, reasonable questions we could ask about um, about the swing and what the contact rate's going to be like. But I think he showed us Two things. One is that every other part of his game that you might care about is intact um, and as good as or better than originally forecasted. And two, that he is making adjustments in a good way. And I think you could even argue from a broader perspective, too. Kansas City's you – know, all right, these guys have to get to the majors and actually do it. But what the Royals are doing on the hitting side seems to be I – mean, this Dayton Moore has been there for 15 years and this, I would say, is probably the best uh, the best run of pr- actual development by hitting prospects. Guys coming into the system and getting better um, as hitters that we've had, that the Royals have had since he got there. The fact that Prado and Melendez were zeros in 2019 and have turned really completely changed what they are as hitters. Um, while Witt, who was always likely to be a star and four of the tools were clearly plus but now he's made so much progress as a hitter to me this is very promising one for the uh for the royals in general and two extremely promising for wit in particular because hey it's a shortstop with power and speed and if he really does hit for average for a high average i mean that's an mvp candidate 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, a nice bonus for the, the skills that he definitely has if that comes together, too. This is a team that I think has its own sort of identity offensively. I mean, it's really it's more of a speed team than most teams mm-hmm. in the league. They're not building around power and barrels specifically. Salvador Perez, you know, the amazing season that he's had this year. I, I don't know if anyone saw that coming. Alec Lewis had a great piece for the Athletic, you know, digging into some of the changes that Sal has made. And it does go back to 2020. I think it was easy to brush off what he did in the shortened season and say, yeah, well, he's mm-hmm. always had power. Like, anything's possible over a 60-game season. But maybe some of the changes that we've seen that have played out with the massive home run spike this year, maybe those were already in place a year ago. I think the interesting thing here is that with Melendez, you have a catcher in Sal Perez who's DHing a little already and might DH a lot more in the future. If this transformation holds, or even 70% of this transformation holds, they could actually coexist in the same lineup together too, which is almost feels like found money. As you said, Melendez had such strikeout issues two years ago that didn't really look like he was going to be an impact player at the big league level necessarily. Yeah, and I think you have to... Port, like Melendez is the catcher of the future now. I know Salvador Perez has an incredible year. That's extremely unlikely to continue, given his age, given his track record. I mean, just physically, he's not going to hold up as a catcher for much longer. Catchers just don't. You're lo- you're ignoring the entire base rate of catchers across baseball history. If you think Salvador Perez is going to remain 140 game, you watch he's caught, caught a little bit less than that, I believe. But if you think he's going to remain a full-time catcher, the ideal role for Perez next year might be, as you said, he's primarily a DH but he's catching more than just a backup would as they ease Melendez into the big leagues. But Melendez has to be their primary catcher by the end of next season. And the fact that Perez is hitting well enough that he can fill in that role and be, you know, more than competent as a DH is, uh, is a huge bonus for Kansas city. I'm sure they weren't planning on that. They would have been, I think we all would have all accused them of just irrational optimism if they were forecasting that before the season. For sure. Melendez's strikeout rate at high A, 39.4%. I mean, I know he was young to the level. He was 20 years old. That was here. He was awful. So you see that. Like, was there anything at all that you could see that made you somewhat optimistic about future improvement, even if it wasn't this much improvement? I mean, being in the low 20% with the K rate at double A and triple A, that is, I, I can't recall a player who's made that much of a transformation going from the A ball levels to the upper levels of the minor leagues. No, I can't think of it. I mean, he and Prado were lost, absolutely lost. And in Melendez's case, fine. We kind of knew before he got into Pro Bowl anyway that he was, um, Melendez was even in the high school, right? It was a four bat, you know, four hitting tool with five being average. Four bat, seven power, four glove, seven arm, probably an eight arm. He's got a cannon, but I mean, something like that. You knew what you were getting. What Prado's deal in high school was that he could really hit. Everyone said, well, he's definitely going to hit. He's absolutely, he's got great field to hit. He's an advanced hitter for a high school kid. And they looked completely lost. In Prado's case, it was a really poor sense of the strike zone combined with, um, uh, you know, not having impact when he did actually uh, put the ball in play. Whereas in uh, Melendez's case, he'd hit something hard now and then. He'd flash the power. But it was like he was guessing all the time. And when people would try to talk those guys up as real prospects, there's just no evidence to support that. These guys, you could not, you couldn't have sent them to double A. They weren't even hitting well enough against A-ball pitching. And in almost every game those guys played that I saw them that year, I'd say 80% of the time I saw Wilmington, um, the 
best pitcher wasn't the one they were facing. It was on their team because they had Singer and Cower and Lynch and Bubich and um, I'm forgetting there were others. You know, that rotation was loaded. Bolin was here at the end of the year. There was, you know, it's not like they were facing the best pitching. The best pitching in the league was on their own team. These guys stunk. And I knew from talking to Royals people that they, Prado had made some real, there'd been some real progress, right? Some real transformations there. So I knew that existed. Melendez, to me, is even still a shock now because there wasn't much indication coming out of Kansas City that that was happening. So, um, I, I, you know, you got to give a lot of credit to Kansas City's player development. Obviously, they've kind of always, you know, seen themselves, pitched themselves as a player development organization, as one that needed to, because obviously they were never going to compete at the financial level with the the big dogs in their division, let alone the American League. So they have to do this. They have to hit on this. Now you can actually go the other way. So, all right, well, now they got to, they took all this good college pitching. Those guys have to develop because they got to catch up with the Whit Melendez Prado group. With Prado, there's a slightly higher K rate than there has been with Witt and Melendez this season, upper 20s, like 28.3% triple A, 29.1% at double A. He's walking a ton. Do you think Prado's ready for the very early 2022 call-up, or would you send him back to triple A for a month or two, hoping he can make a little more contact and, and then give him the bump? I'd put all three of those guys in the in the majors next year and let them struggle. They got to make those adjustments let them come do it in the big leagues. I understand there's going to be all kinds of screaming about service time. You know, a lot of these guys lost the, yeah, it's probably less of an issue for um, wit age wise, just because he was drafted, what, two years ago, but it, it, get them moving, get them in the big leagues, sending them to AAA to start next season, assuming AAA starts at the same time as the majors, which was not the case this year. You're just wasting time. You're not continuing their development. It would not surprise me if all three of those guys had a longer adjustment period. You and I have said this before. I've had scouts say this to me. The gap between the majors and the minors, even AAA, seems to be larger than ever right now. And if that's going to mean a longer adjustment period for any or all three of those players, well, the solution to that is get them in the big leagues. Get them playing as quick as possible. This is going to be the core of the next great Royals lineup. The sooner you get all three of those guys up and working their way up to the players we expect them to be, the better. And it really rounds out a lineup that has a few holes in it right now, too. If they end up keeping Whit Merrifield, you can move him to another position. You know, Nicky Lopez has actually had a nice year. I think he's just more of a, a secondary piece in a, in a good lineup, but it's nice mm-hmm. to see him take a step forward. It's fair. I think the lack of, of power that I was alluding to before, that starts to fade pretty quickly when you put all three of these guys on the roster. You know, Carlos Santana's got a year left on his deal. They could easily just eat the money and move on or trade them away as part of a your contract for my contract sort of problem so they can make all these pieces fit there are clear spots for all of these guys to begin Mm -hmm. in the big leagues in 2022 when you look at the royals are they the team in the al central that is the biggest short-term and even long-term threat to the white Sox? that's a good question yeah i feel like that probably does a disservice to the tigers yeah, I think I feel I I wouldn't pick them or the Tigers. Now, I guess I suppose at some point you have to pick one of them, right? Maybe the Royals are slightly ahead in that, but I mean the Tigers have their own offensive trio coming: Torkelson, uh, Riley Green, who was in my article, and Dylan Dingler, and they also have their own group of pretty advanced uh, pitching prospects also coming fairly quickly. Um, well, Casey Mize is here, right? Casey Mize already established himself as a good big league starter. And I, you and I discussed him not that long ago. I think there's still quite a bit of upside there too. Um, where, yeah, I think that there's, um, I think you could make an argument that it's the Tigers and not the Royals. I guess if I actually have to put 
money on one of those two rather than punting. I'd lean a little bit towards the Royals, probably because they're, they've got the track record of guys getting better. Um, they've guys have done a, you know, prospects have improved hitting prospects, especially have improved more getting into their system. Whereas the Tigers just actually just reshuffled on the player development side. Um, where, uh, you know, I, so I think that, which I think is an, an acknowledgement that, um, it's probably more on the pitching side, but, you know, Torkelson and Green and Dingler, these guys were all probably pretty good to begin with. Um, so I think, uh, I think you can make the argument that Kansas City has a slight edge, but I would not want to discount, um, what the Tigers are doing and how much, just how much talent they're going to have at the core of that roster by the middle of next year, probably. Yeah, the Tigers pitching. The starting pitching really kind of stands out a little more, but I could see the Royals' bats being even a little more impactful. I think the interesting thing about the Royals, the defense they've got too, that pitching they have currently can play up a little bit. Like The way they've built that team gives them a little more buffer with the development of some of those guys. Yes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, I would say like... If Matt Manning gets completely healthy, I still think Tariq Skubal has some upside left. There's there's more coming in Detroit. Um, I, I don't want anyone, you know, I could picture Tigers fans screaming over this over this podcast, right? That's uh, you know, why are you why um, why are you discounting the Tigers? Why do you hate the Tigers? But you know, they're pretty. They're, the core is really good, right? It's three really great pitching prospects and three really great hitting prospects. Kansas City could match that. Kansas City's got a little bit more around those guys. I have a little more confidence in players in the Royal system getting better than I do players in the Tigers system getting better. I would also go back to the Tigers took a high school pitcher with the third overall pick in the draft this year. Hey, maybe they got think they got the next Clayton Kershaw, you know, high school pitcher rockets to the big leagues. But history says that's probably not the case, and he's a good bit behind in their um you know, I, and I think the true in general of a lot of their draft, but, you know, they took Isaac Pacheco later in the draft. He was a first round talent. That was a great pick for where they took him. He's also going to take a while. And I don't know that they're going to have necessarily the extra players around that core. They'll get good, but they're probably going to have to supplement more from outside or just get lucky on some guys where the Royals, I could probably make a little better argument for some depth coming out of their system. But again, it's close. These clubs are going to be good. That division is going to be tough. And I would say only the, the soon to be guardians are in kind of, you know, relative to the other clubs, they're not in great shape. And that's assuming, I think the Twins are a pretty good bounce back candidate for next year, but Cleveland is at the point now where they're, you know, on the downside of a, of a window of contention, and that's probably not going to change in the next couple of years. Yeah, since we're on the AL Central, let's look at the Twins for just a second. I mean, they had a lot of injuries this year. I could see just even having a healthy Kirilov and a healthy Larnack and a healthy Buxton. Like, that's a big lift for the offense that, like alone, I think is a is a massive step forward for them. I think the biggest question for them is how are they going to address their need for pitching? The Kenta Maeda injury created a huge void for them, and they were mm-hmm. probably one quality starting pitcher short at least for being a, a playoff contender as they were built going into 2021. So how do you see them fixing that? Do you think they kind of shop in the the free agent bargain bin, or do you think they could be players for you know a Robbie Ray or one of the the better options that'll be available this winter? I don't know. They haven't seemed that inclined to play in the deeper end of, of the free agent market. That's on ownership. Obviously, this is not a, any indictment of the front office. There was also some pitching coming in the system. I mean, Jordan Balazovich, I just get nothing but great reports on him. Um, Yohan Duran, I think, got a chance to be a pretty good starter. I mean, they've got – there's some pitching coming. 
in that system, yeah, it would probably help them to go out and get one more. Yeah, maybe it's not an ace. Maybe it's not a top end starter. Maybe it's an innings guy. Um, also, they just they had a lot of underperformances this year. Some injuries. I mean, I just look up and down that roster and think they should have been better. Everyone picked them to win the division. I think myself included. Well, maybe not everyone. Everyone. But a lot of people picked them to win a division. Their collapse this season is probably the most shocking in that direction of any club I can think of in baseball. Yeah, and I think their their free agent spending caps out around what they did with Josh Donaldson, right? Like a four year, eighty four yeah. million dollar deal. That was the biggest free agent deal they'd ever given out before. Like that's sort of where they go. So it's not the top end guys, but maybe that next level below where they could potentially mm-hmm. be players. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's move on to Baltimore, though. Let's take a look at Grayson Rodriguez and Adley Rutschman. Rutschman, I believe, was a runner-up for the Player of the Year honors in the minor leagues. And certainly, as you wrote, just because you didn't win the award doesn't mean you had a bad season. There are plenty of players that had fantastic seasons in the minors. With Rutschman, there's nothing left for him to prove. It seems like there's been nothing left for him to prove in the minors for a few months now. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, he should have been up. And, you know, these two two things are working against them, right? The small size of September rosters it just provides further cover for teams that don't want to call players up to protect their service time. And then you've got the service time games. Um, and if you're an Orioles fan, like, okay, Cedric Mullins has been awesome, right? He's been an incredible story this year, but you, you want to see Rutschman. He's your reason to go to the, he would be a reason to go to the ballpark at this point. This is a bad team that's playing out the strength. And so why not call Rutschman up for your fans and for his development? There's, you're waiting on nothing at this point. He should be in the big leagues. Um, and in the case of a catcher, I would argue it's even a little more important uh, to call such a player up. I guess we could have said this about Melendez. We could say it about um, you know Dingler in Detroit. It's better to get those guys up sooner working with any major league pitchers you expect them to be working with in the long term. You know, If you think that Adley Rutschman is going to be catching John Means 
at the beginning of next year, well, get them together so they can start working together and start build up a rapport, start the process of communication. Get Adley working with the major league coaching staff. We know now Brandon Hyde is coming back next year. I think he's good. I think that was the right move for them. Again, get them all together. The sooner you get them together, the better. And I really don't understand. Um, I mean, I understand. I really disagree with these teams who are – it's pennywise and pound foolish to me. You're saving a small amount of money in the short term um, and hypothetically saving some money in the long term. Um, but in the case, especially God, a catcher, you really think you can tell me what a catcher is going to be like in six, seven years, and given just the attrition rate on catching, get Rutschman to the big leagues, right? At the club, will be, they'll be better and more watchable. You'll accelerate, accelerate his development. He's a difference maker, and I, I, wish he'd, I wish he'd come up. Yeah, definitely looks like a special player. And with Grayson Rodriguez, I mean, this is an impact pitcher. And for the Orioles, yeah. impact pitching has not been something they have traditionally developed all that well. Uh, the season that Rodriguez has put together in the minors, really eye-popping numbers. I mean, a 39% K rate at AA as a, mm-hmm. a 21-year-old. That is, is fantastic. What does he bring in that arsenal, and, and just how special do you think he's going to be once he reaches the big league level? Yeah, well, I've made this argument. Roger, I named Rodriguez the pitcher, my minor league pitcher of the year, right? So I like him, obviously, and I acknowledge what he did. However... The Orioles have made a choice developing him. He has not thrown 90 pitches in a game all year. I'm not actually sure. I guess I'd have to look this up. I'm not sure he's ever thrown 90 pitches in a pro game. Obviously, he did it all the time in high school. This is clearly um, designed to, uh, you know, some sort of attempt to protect his arm, right? Which, obviously, we want that. We want to keep guys healthy as much as possible. However, um, I think also there's, you know, the evidence that we have maybe doesn't support. I don't know that keeping guys on this much of a pitch limit is actually supported by evidence that's really going to keep them healthy. Um, and in his case, he's never learning. Well, two things. One, he's not, he's not learning to turn over a pro lineup three times. It's a big difference between turning over even a double A lineup, turning over a high school lineup three times, um, especially when you're when you throw as hard as Rodriguez does. And he does. I've seen him hit a hundred. It's it and it's the fastball plays. This is a good fastball, it's a, a plus major league fastball, not just by velocity, but just by how how hitters don't hit it. Um, you know, the breaking stuff I think is still a work in progress. A guy with an arm this fast should be able to throw a decent slider. I think he will eventually get there. Um, but he's not pitching that much. He's not pitching that deep into games, and so he's not working on it. He's also not pacing himself. And one, I think that skews the numbers, right? If I tell you, well, you're you're only going to face eighteen batters today. Okay, well, I. <laughs> I don't, I can just air it out. And that's, I mean, it's fine. He's doing exactly what you'd expect a pitcher to do in that situation. But at the same time, is he going to have that same quality stuff when he knows he's going 100 to 110 pitches on a regular basis in the majors? I don't know that. We don't know that. Would his strikeout rate be lower if he were doing that in the minors this year? Yeah, probably. I think likely. Um, you know, he'd, if nothing else, because he'd be throwing more pitches while a little more fatigued in game. Um, and the truth is, from what you know, from what we know on the outside of clubs, the Orioles may have information we don't have, obviously. But hey, throwing at the maximum, throwing at the top end of your own personal velocity range, seems to increase the risk of Tommy John surgery. And of course, Rodriguez is doing that. He's hitting 100 regularly. I don't think the top end of his velocity range is 103. So, you know, he is still doing that. So if we're maybe just marginally reducing the chance of an injury. But way under pitching. I'm not arguing over pitching. I'm arguing don't stop under pitching. 
a marginal reduction in the chance of an injury that comes with a cost of reduced development. I'm not sure about that trade-off myself. I would not favor this if I were running a farm system. Um, you know, I'd be trying to get him to 90 pitch by this point, given his age, his experience, trying to get him to 90 pitches regularly, regularly, a couple times a year, push him a little bit to 100 pitches, judge it by how he's looking in the game, right? We have data. We know, okay, hey, his fastball velocity has not dropped at all on pitch 91. Okay, great. He's good for one more inning, two more batters, and then he's out of the game. You could develop him a little bit differently. So I I like Rodriguez. I recognize what he does well. I think if you just look at his stat line, it's a little bit misleading because because he's not being handled the way that most other pitching prospects are being handled. Now, if you're going to handle him this way, does it make more sense to push him past AAA and let him debut in the big leagues early next season? Because if you're getting fewer reps, you're throwing fewer pitches, don't you want every one of those pitches to be at the highest level of competition possible to make everyone as valuable as it can possibly be? Well, this is the other question, and I don't think anybody's really cracked the code on this particular thing, but um, it is... You know, yeah, if you if you believe in the argument, oh, these pitchers only have so many bullets in the tank, you might as well have them spend those bullets in the big leagues. Okay, I, I'm sympathetic to that. I understand that. I'm not sure that specifically from a from the Orioles' perspective, having Grayson Rodriguez make ten starts for them in the big leagues this year, they would draw more when he was in, when he was pitching. Obviously, that'd be pretty great. Um, their fans would really enjoy it. I think that'd be good. You know, it takes them. You know, it, it makes no difference to how good this Orioles team is this year. Um, the better argument to me is from a developmental perspective. Like Rodriguez's secondary stuff is not as good as his fastball. His fastball is elite. His secondary stuff is not there. He hasn't. It hasn't had to be. He's had no problem carving up single A and double A hitters so far. So, yeah, would I call him up for? There's less of a roster and age reason with him than there is with Rutschman. But would I call him up for a couple of September outings? Have him up sooner next year because hey, you're just. It, yeah, I would because you're probably just not learning anything. He's too good for double A hitters, especially when he's on this leash of only throwing, you know, um, eighteen, only facing eighteen to twenty batters typically in a game. So he's just gonna. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to make any adjustments. He can just blow guys away, quite literally blowing them away with with velocity. I've seen it, and so I think there's a pretty good argument to get him to the big leagues and let major league hitters. Learn to hit his fastball. Maybe they won't, which would be amazing and obviously great news for the Orioles. But most likely, major league hitters will come up and say, it's a really good fastball, but your secondary stuff isn't quite as good. So there are ways to hit you. There are ways to attack you. And he could potentially um, let that, let have him come up, let that happen, let him make the adjustment. He obviously is very good. He's very talented. He's big and strong. There's a lot of development still ahead of him. And it may just not happen until he's adequately challenged by facing major league hitters. Do you think these are similar problems to what the Reds are trying to solve with Hunter Green? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in Hunter Green's case, he's had little in it, right? Well, he's had the one major, the Tommy John surgery, and then his um, AC joint was a little bit irritated. And so he skipped a start, I think. And then they just he, they shortly came back, pitched well, hit his innings limit. They just shut him down. It, he's another one where, I mean, he really does throw 103. He can just blow it right by, guys. His fastball is probably not as good as Rodriguez's, though. Green has the better velocity. But I think in terms of how hitters react to it, hitters I've seen hitters get on Green's fastball more than I've seen them get on Rodriguez's fastball. Rodriguez um, 
And I don't think it's a command thing. I think it's the characteristics of the fastball. I'd rather see Hunter Green throwing 99 with some more movement on it than just throwing 103. Because as crazy as it sounds, major league hitters can hit 103 when it's pretty straight and they can pick it up out of his hand. The good news for Green is that what I've heard from scouts, I have only seen him very briefly um, post Tommy John, but that the slider keeps getting better. He had a curveball in high school. It was not very good. He liked to throw it. A lot of high school kids like, look what I can make the baseball do. But yeah, guess what? It's nowhere close to good enough quality even to get a ball hitters out. When your arm is that fast, you don't even have to spin it that well to throw a pretty good slider. And it sounds like his has been improving um, quite a bit. He may also have to come to the majors. And I would not be surprised at at all if Green came to the majors next year and struggled and gave up just a lot of hard contact. And you say, how the hell is this guy throwing 103 and guys are hitting him like that? Well, yeah, those are the reasons. The fastball quality isn't quite there and he's going to have to learn to mix all his pitches. For a guy who throws that hard, he's probably not going to be throwing 60, 70% fastballs. He needs to be mixing all of his pitches together. And then that 103 is more effective. If a hitter is standing there looking for a slider or changeup, and then it's 103 in on his hands, that's going to be a lot more effective if he's standing there saying, there's a three out of five chance this next pitch is a fastball, so I'm just going to swing now. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, as far as the Orioles' next steps go, right? You've got Rutschman coming up probably on opening day or soon after. Rodriguez at some point probably next season. This is a good system, but maybe not an elite system. And they're in a brutal division just because they've got teams that spend. They've got the Rays. The Jays' young core is fantastic. What do you do if, if you're Mike Elias and you're in the Orioles front office? What is your next step as you try to keep moving ahead with this rebuild? Because it still, despite the optimism about these young players, still looks a little bit hopeless in terms of when they'd see the postseason again. Yeah, the, I think the Orioles' big obstacle now, I mean, we're, we sound like we're picking on the Orioles, but we're not. I think Elias and company are doing a good job. I like the direction. I think they inherited an absolute mess. Um, the major league roster was bad. A lot of the better players on the major league roster who would have had trade value were already gone. They've made some smaller trades, um, you know, like the Dylan Bundy trade that looks like it's going to work out reasonably well for them, but they didn't have the big splash guys to come in and, and, um, and add substantially to their hall of prospects. And they inherited zero international scouting department and have only just recently started to get some international free agents into the system, but those guys aren't even showing up in full season ball yet. So that's not helping. Um, so it's going to take more time probably than folks expected, probably than Orioles fans want it to take. The The other problem they have, and this is the one where I would put the question to Elias and company is, where is the pitching going to come from? Because right now, if you're looking for pitching prospects in that system, it is primarily Grayson Rodriguez, uh, who's their best pitching prospect, D.L. Hall, who I actually had above Grayson Rodriguez coming into the season and who started this year on fire. For seven starts, he pitched the best he'd ever pitched. And he's left-handed, and he's a crazy good athlete, and it's three legit pitches, and then his elbow started bothering him. I don't believe he ever had surgery. There was even talk a couple weeks ago that he would might have a chance to come back before the end of the season. That's not going to happen. Maybe we'll see him in the Arizona Fall League. That would be awesome. That is definitely wishful thinking on my part. Um, but you know, DL Hall is still there. And, and he hasn't actually had surgery. He's not out yet. So I'm going to just still hope that we're going to see him in a major league rotation sooner rather than later. And then it is awkward silence. Mm -hmm. There's not much after that. And um, you know that there are a lot of reasons for that. Number one, they don't really draft much pitching, right? Their philosophy is draft hitting. 
um, because I think they believe that their process, their sort of analytical, analytically driven draft process does a better job of identifying hitters. Also, hitters are less risky. They just are. Um, and I get that. But it also is a good way to build a really good system of, of hitting prospects and not have much pitching. And then couple that with the lack of, you know, if they get anything out of the international side, it's going to be two, three years before we even see those results because of the lag time of signing 16-year-olds. So they're not getting pitching from that side either. I just saw a guy, Brandon Young, who was an undrafted free agent for them, um, who was – stuff wasn't remarkable, but hitters do, do not – he no-hit Greenville with Nick York and a couple other decent you know, hitting prospects. He no-hit them for like six innings, I think, before – it might have actually been a perfect game before they – I think they just took him out on pitch count. That's an undrafted free agent without elite stuff or anything. He might be one of the 10 best pitching prospects in the system. Um, nothing against him, but it just says to me you just don't have enough pitching. If they were in a different division, maybe I'd be less concerned. But as you said, that division is extremely competitive. And they are um, they are at a, a number of disadvantages, including a financial one against three of the other clubs in the division. So what's the solution? At some point, do they go out and buy a bunch of pitching? Do they try to trade some of the hitting for pitching? Um, it's going to have to come from outside the organization if they don't change their uh, drafting philosophy. And I, I don't I don't expect them to at this point. I think so much of, of this organization's DNA is similar to what Houston did, of course. That's where Elias came from. And if you think yeah. about the Astros and what they have done, they traded for Granke, of course, and traded for Verlander. So they made moves that way. Mm-hmm. But they've had remarkable success developing seemingly, you know, ordinary pitching prospects, guys that probably had 40, 45 future grades and getting more mileage out of them. And that group includes Framber Valdez and includes Luis Garcia and probably includes Jose Urquidy too, right? Those guys were decent prospects, but they weren't top 100 guys. They weren't getting a lot of attention. So I wonder if that's... Garcia was top 100 guy. Garcia was in for you? Patting myself on the back. (laughs) No one could see it. But of course, so was Forrest Whitley, right? Right. Forrest Whitley was, my. oh my God, Mike Elias, Jeff Luno. They took a high school pitcher in the first round. And, you know, poor Forrest Whitley's been moving around under a black cloud for the last three years. And, and, you know, who who knows when he gets to the majors at this point. He's out this year with Tommy John. He probably won't pitch until some point into next year. Just pitch at all. You know, there's rumor. I don't know if this is actually true. I haven't asked Elias about this, but it's that he's never taking a pitcher in the first round again after that one. That's a little dramatic. But it's also, you know, you look at Whitley. Whitley was, but kind of from the moment he signed, he was like, well, if you're going to take a high school pitcher in the first round, it should look like that, right? He had size, athleticism, many pitches, threw strikes, and, and it didn't work. Mackenzie Gore would be another one. If you're going to take a high school pitcher in the first round, he's left-handed. He's got velocity. He's crazy athletic. He's got two good secondary pitches now. He's three good secondary pitches, and he has stalled out. Um, and so there are plenty of arguments against taking pitching in the first round, and that that's not going to, you know, that is not necessarily going to change for the Orioles. Uh, yet at some point somewhere in there, right, you do have to find pitch. Pitching has to come from somewhere. You can't not have pitching in your system. And I do think it is hard. You're right. They could just decide we're going to just gather all these hitting prospects and then trade for pitching at some point. Okay. You need a whole lot of hitting prospects to build a whole pitching staff. Even if you have Rodriguez and Hall at the start of it, and maybe in the last year or two of means before he gets to free agency, you're going to need more. You're going to need more pitching. They're just going to need more pitching depth than that. And they don't have that in the system. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking back to like when the Astros started their rebuild, Lance McCullers, they drafted him back in 2012. Jordan Lyles might have been their best pitching prospect when that started. It was ugly. The Astros yeah. system way yeah. back when that whole process started was brutal. 
And remember, McCullers was, this is what the Orioles should do. And they sort of tried to do this last year, but the kid they took, the high school kid they took ended up having Tommy John surgery, Carter Baumler. But the McCullers idea was um, that, well, that was the year they took Correa first overall so and cut a huge, crazy discount with him. His agent, I think, did not do him any favors. But then they took the savings to sign Lance McCullers and Rio Ruiz with later picks. Love that. Great strategy. All in on going that way. Would love to see the Orioles do do more of that. If you're going to save... And by the way, the guy they took first overall this year, Colton Cowser, well, not first overall, their first pick. Fifth overall, off to a great start. Looks like he can really hit. I don't know how, what exactly his ceiling is. He might be more of just a good 55, like an above average guy than a star. But absolutely, that's that's a good pick. That one looks like it's working out. Um, but they didn't... You look at the rest of the draft, and it's like, they're, these are fine players. They did well. But where's the big over slot? All right, now this is where we're going to go all in on the guy who fell and has more upside. I didn't see it, so I'm not sure what the... You know, again, it just comes... The ultimate question has to be, where is the pitching coming from? And they need to have an answer to that. Maybe we can't see it from the outside. I fully acknowledge that. But I, at this point, if I'm trying to do an objective evaluation from the outside, I think... You're doing a great job on the hitters. And by the way, hitters in that system are getting better too. Joey Ortiz, before he hurt his shoulder, big progress. Jeremy Pena turns out to, has turned into a much better hitter than anyone forecasted at the time of the draft. So they're doing a lot of things right. But where's the pitching? Yeah, a common question for a lot of teams, but certainly a big one in Baltimore right now from a depth perspective especially. Let's get to Julio Rodriguez, who you wrote about in the piece this week because – He's just another great young player in an organization that has a lot of guys getting to the big leagues right now. Of course, it's the Seattle Mariners. And if I asked you, who's the next Toronto? Who's the next team with a really good young core that's going to come up, get into the playoff mix, and and actually maybe hang around for several years? It kind of feels like Seattle would be in the consideration to be that sort of team because they've got yeah. quality everywhere you need to have quality. Yep, it's a good choice, especially if the pitching stays healthy. Um, they're they're actually in pretty good shape. I mean, that would be it's funny because I don't know that I would say that I don't think their system is deeper um, than the Orioles. Uh, certainly not on the hitting side, but they have the better balance of guys who look like they're going to be you know potential above average major league regulars between hitters and pitchers. And you know, I think George Kirby, as long as he holds up, he's taken a huge step forward this year. Um, Emerson Hancock looks as, as good as advertised. That system has definitely um, – I, I, they still don't have great depth compared to some of the best farm systems in baseball, but the system has definitely improved in that regard, both in terms of internal development and um, and in terms of guys who uh, – in terms of their drafts. I think that their draft uh, process has changed – the last two years or so, maybe it's two to three years, and we're seeing better results from that versus the first couple of years when um, when Depoto was there. And frankly, I didn't think they were drafting all that well. Not, maybe not even in the first round. Matt Brash, that was the. I was trying to remember the other guy. He's their breakout pitching prospect of the year. You can probably put him not too far behind the Hancock Kirby group of pitchers who are at the top of the system. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that the Mariners have done well, aside from putting star level talent on the field with young guys like Kelnick who's actually make a lot of adjustments in the second half we talked about him earlier this season yep. you know, hey, that jump to the majors is it's really big it's huge right Rodriguez we'll talk about in a minute Noel V Marte like they have a lot of impact guys but they've also traded 
Jerry Depoto's done a great job with the high volumes of, of trades that he made, just finding useful big leaguers, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Ty France and Abraham Toro and Luis Torrens, those guys are all at least useful big league players. Even Jake Fraley might be more of like a fourth outfielder. Yeah. This is this is really good work. It's another way to obtain talent. I would say, you know, Farhan Zaidi in San Francisco has done this turning on the waiver wire a lot too. Like there's there are a lot of ways to find value. And Jerry Depoto and that front office clearly seem to have it in the form of almost getting like throw in trade players back that are extremely valuable to them in the long run. Yeah, that's a thing, right? That is absolutely a skill. And I would say in both cases of both of those organizations, they are, um, they've sort of made them appear to be repeatable skills. They keep finding guys like that, um, which is, uh, you know, that's how you build. Um, that's one way to answer all of these questions. Like, I feel like I've said similar things about all of these clubs we've talked about, about Detroit, about Baltimore, Seattle, right? These are things. You got to fill in from somewhere. If your farm system is the Tampa Bay's or the Dodgers, where it's just spitting out so many players, you can't even use them all. All right, fine. Where are you getting the rest of them? Well, pro scouting is one. Kind of interesting. We've got a you know situation where we have teams like Milwaukee that basically have no pro scouts at all. Um, it is interesting to see. To me, it should be um, a lesson to some clubs. Hey. There's still a lot of value in pro scouting. You want that information. And that's not just what they see, although I want pro scouts' opinions on players. It's what they hear, what they're learning. They're at the ballpark. It is the stuff between the plays that they see. It is talking to teammates. It's talking to coaches. It's talking to other scouts and finding out what are the things you didn't know about certain players and can help you make some of those better decisions. And the clubs that are choosing to do without pro scouting, they use the same expressions, pennywise and pound foolish. They are absolutely missing out on information that I think would make them more effective in, in player acquisition. So Julio Rodriguez, what type of impact are you expecting here? How much did he show you? Because I, if I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, you were relative to other people. Yeah. You were a, a little more of a skeptic on him. I don't look at other lists. <laughs> you know what? That's They can say what they want. I, I don't care about other lists and people who are like, you're wrong because you're lower than everyone else. Yeah, there was the year I had Fernando Tatis Jr. on my top 100 and no other list did, which I know because people pointed it out to me. So I was <laughs> alone, but I was right. So being the only one to have a certain opinion on a player doesn't make you wrong. It's just the appeal to popular opinion. And so when people say that to me, okay, maybe I don't say this directly, but in my mind, I'm like, just shut up. I don't. <laughs> you're, it's just stupid. Like, how old do you have to be before you figure out that that's not true? The person who has the non-consensus opinion is not necessarily wrong. I like Rodriguez. I think he's going to be a really, really good hitter. Like, he's going to be a cleanup hitter for a long time. I would predict that. um, I would like to see where his defense is because the last time I saw him play defense, it was definitely a work in progress. And I would like to see what his approach looks like against Major League Hitting. He's another guy. I think there could be an adjustment period. There could be a long period of making adjustments, particularly not because it's not because there's anything wrong with his like pitch recognition or anything, but he's a big kid with a long swing. That happens sometimes. Sometimes those kids just those guys, they do have trouble. They need more time to figure it out, to piece together the ability to just hit major league pitching. It's been video game numbers for Rodriguez though so far at double A this oh, season. Forty six games, three sixty two, a four sixty one OBP at a five forty six slugging percentage. Just twenty years old, turns twenty one in late December. Uh, exciting player. 
on top of other exciting players there. Mm-hmm. I mean, because if you look at this core, is Kyle Lewis a part of the long-term core? I know it's a, it's a matter of health for him, but I think he's flashed, even against big league pitching, the ability to be an impact bat. Yeah, the problem is they're going to have more outfielders than they can use, right? I think they have more talent total coming, and so they're going to have to trade some guys. I mean, the answer with Lewis may just be, it may be academic because, as you said, it's been health for him. I, you know, and that, that may end up answering the question, which would be a shame because also to come back from per, such a severe knee injury, he'd be a great story. But I, um, I have a feeling he's going to end up squeezed out by other players. If he had a full healthy season, you know, we know he's good enough defensively to be a real asset to the team, but he just, he may just never have that full healthy season that he needs. The one, you know, he was rookie of the year last year, um, because, you know, in the, in the shortened season, he actually played a full season. Yeah, it's been uh, the unfortunate part of his professional career so far. Just lots of trouble with the knees in particular. Uh, One last thing to get to before we go, Keith. The playoff picture, since you and I last spoke, has changed a lot. The Cardinals are now pretty clearly going to be a playoff team. They've got a Mm -hmm. 94.5% chance of making the playoffs, so it would take an incredible collapse for them to fall short. And they got Jack Flaherty coming back from the IL, probably in a limited role, of course, that first time out, coming off another arm injury. But is this a good team playing exceptionally well at the right time, or is it, as baseball Twitter might say, devil magic? <laughs> I think they were my preseason pick to win the division. So, of course, I'm going to say this is absolutely a good team. <laughs> I was right all along. I was right all along. Absolutely. No, I think this is a really good team. I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's any question this is a good enough team. And I think they're also a good enough team to be pretty dangerous in. October. Obviously, anybody who gets in is good enough to be dangerous in October. But no, I'm I'm a believer. I'm absolutely a believer. I think they are going to. I think they're a good enough team to be in the playoffs. Yeah, I think having a lot of guys who've been there before somehow makes them a little more scary, right? If they if they're down two zero in a series, are they going to panic? Probably not. Why Why would they? Like, they, yeah. does anybody? Is that really a thing? I don't know. I always, I always wonder if it matters. If you're a first-time playoff team, at least with your core, versus a team that's got guys that have been there, I don't know how you respond to the adversity in those situations. I mean, the Padres were a bunch of noobs last year, right? And They handled themselves pretty well. Yeah, if they would have had more pitching, they would have probably done even more damage. The Royals in 14, they didn't have much in the way of... They have one or two guys who'd been there before, but it was mostly kids. Was that 14? The year they lost to the Giants, right? Yeah. And they got to the last game. And they only because they ran into a buzzsaw and Madison Bumgarner, you know, they could have won. I think, I don't think experience is a non-factor. I think it's kind of overrated. I would take a team, a really talented team of guys who'd never been to the playoffs before. I'd take that over a less talented team of guys who'd been there before. I guess the thing with the Cardinals, people probably overlook. I mentioned this on a pod like last week, but the defense is really good. Like they're an elite fielding team and elite fielding teams don't get people that excited if you're a great defensive team, mm-hmm. people just kind of shrug and say, that's your job. You're playing I great like defense. Them. Yeah, it's top-end run prevention. And they've got some dangerous bats, of course. Arenado, Goldschmidt, role players are solid, too. Dylan Carlson could step up on the big stage, give them one more high-quality offensive option, too. So I, I do see them as a very dangerous postseason team, uh, even beyond a wild-card matchup. They could absolutely mm-hmm. make a deep run. I don't want to see it, but it very well could happen. Last thing here, I'm hoping, it's weird for me to root for the Phillies of all teams, I'm hoping the (laughs) Phillies sweep the Pirates. I just want the NL East battle 
to go down to the last day of the season with so much of the playoff picture. Yeah, somewhere. Like the NL side is just so solidified otherwise. Like we really need that in the National League. I'm looking at the standings. We see the Dodgers and Giants are actually closer. They're, they're two game separation, but they're also both already in the playoffs. They're both going to win 100 games. And so it matters a bit. It's not a huge deal. Whereas um, in uh, the AL, sorry, in the NL East, it is probably the difference between winning a division and going, going to the playoffs and going home. So, yes, I agree. With four games separation on the loss column, this is, pro- this is certainly Atlanta's to lose, but I would love to see Philly make it close so that that series actually does matter. Yeah, that's that's my one wish for this season. It's not asking all that much. Philly's just got to sweep the Pirates, and I will at least temporarily be happy. But we are going to go. If you're looking for more great baseball content to listen to this weekend, check out the latest episode of the Keith Law Show. Joe Posnanski was the guest. The Baseball 100 book that Joe just released. Uh, I have a copy of that, Keith. It's about the size of an America's Test Kitchen cookbook, if I had yeah. to guess, or like a, a Bible, probably. It's over two pounds. And that is the that is the galley version. I don't even have the actual hardcover yet. Um, so I'm assuming that's going to weigh more. So like if you, you know, somebody breaks into the house, you can whack them in the head with that. Stand your ground with a copy of the Baseball 100. It's great to have a self-defense tool and something enjoyable to read right it's on the nightstand. It's a floor wax and a dessert topic. <laughs> so be sure to check out that episode. Of course, check out Rates and Barrels on our full suite of fantasy baseball shows as well. Uh, programming note, Rates and Barrels goes five days a week starting the Tuesday that the postseason begins. So a lot of playoff coverage there. New subscribers can get into The Athletic for 50% off at theathletic.com slash baseball show. Check out Keith's article that we were talking about on this episode, plus everything else that we're writing on the site right now, too. If you're enjoying this podcast, take a moment to give us a rating and review. Tell a friend, and uh, we really appreciate that. On Twitter, he's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.